Namaste. As part of the series on Sri Aurobindo's writings, today we take up Collected Works of Sri Aurobindo, Volume 25, which comprises of three books: The Human Cycle, The Ideal of Human Unity, and War and Self-Determination. These are the three books that uh, it comprises of. And as we all know, these were serialized in the Arya. Uh, between 1914 to 1918 at different points of time so um, essentially what shrivindra was doing as we know during the arya period in the idea world he was releasing new forces of um, a new construction new creation which is yet to come he saw it but he had to put it in a language which we uh, could ex- understand for him it was clear as clear as daylight um someone asked him to that extent he said it is as certain for me as the rising of the next day another day but quite naturally because we are where we are so he uh, reveals to us in a language that we can connect with so today we'll take up uh, let's see how much of it but uh, the book the human cycle the volume volume 25 contains all the three books so human cycle basically means that evolution is not a straight line but a cyclical process it's a spiral now in indian conception we know we hear about satyog treta dwapar and kaliyug and something similar exists in um, western mysticism the golden age the silver age the bronze age and the iron age so essentially it means that um, this um, this whole thing was under the basic title of the psychology of social development so how human collectivities move so we have mostly when we think about evolution even in vedanta we talk a lot about individual evolution there is something like collective evolution for instance the conception of the ram rajya or an ideal kingdom of heaven upon earth but it is not much stressed the gita itself speaks about lok sangraharth the march of humanity um, so yet over a period of time uh, spirituality tended to become too much into an individualistic evolution uh, ultimately leading to the high point of escape from this vexed world troubled world uh, full of um, suffering and misery of various kinds but there is this parallel side of collective evolution and it is uh, important for two reasons one is that if at all this earth has to become transformed into something like a divine image it cannot be just an individual here and there individuals yes necessary in the beginning but it cannot be just an individual here a master there a guruji here it has to be masses of mankind which must awaken to this greater necessity of a higher spiritual evolution second there is an interdependence of the individual and the collectivity all of us know that how society can help or impede the individual in his progress usually it uh, impedes why because individuals are like spearheads so they are the ones who are you know when you actually look at a spear how it works so there is a point that point is the individual who is foreing further into the future but there is this heavy part which is held back they are both required for you know by each other for instance if the individual doesn't evolve the society will remain where it is um, even go down and down and if the society doesn't evolve it will hold back the individual from his uh, evolutionary purpose evolutionary journey so this is the second reason why there is this interdependence and therefore uh, we have to speak at some point about the collective evolution collective emancipation of mankind some people have suggested when they speak about spiritual evolution that well when everybody has moksha it is like a collective emancipation but it's a non starter because moksha the way it is understood today not moksha the way the vedic rishi is understood moksha for the vedic rishis was freedom from ignorance meaning thereby we know who we are we are a soul um, who is you know using the body as an instrument and the mind as a means of expression that's what we are but moksha as it became to be understood came to be understood over a period of time was freedom from this cycle of birth and death 
So it gave an absurdity to creation itself. So if we take that view of life, nirvana and moksha, a kind of escape from the earth, then obviously even if large number of human beings were to, by some magic or miracle, be emancipated into nirvanic silence and escape, that doesn't mean anything for the earth. So earthly evolution means here. And here Shubindo uh, reveals to us what is going on here upon this planet earth. The most happening thing. And the most happening thing is a progressive evolution. So he starts with this idea of cycles that how through this spiral. Now spiral is very interesting because spiral doesn't mean that we rise and fall back to the same place. It means we rise, come down because something is not yet picked up and we rise to a yet higher poise. So in a spiral, it's like, you know, um, each cycle, there is a greater momentum. To put it in another way, each Kalyu, you work out something on the material plane which has not been worked out. And this um, idea of working in different planes is also very beautifully given in these scriptures. You know, like for instance, Vishnu descends in a particular age as king, then he descends as a codifier who puts systems and laws and rules and regulations. And then as the Yagya Purush in Kali where works and sacrifice are the way of life. So at each level in Satyug, there is a direct spiritual opening and there is spiritual um, revelations, experiences. But the human mind is not prepared. It cannot fully assimilate it. But because the mind is in a certain state, it has not been allowed its full development. So there are these... Um, Wonderful experiences, communication with gods, you know, magically the lines from higher domains descend as the mantras. But then the mind must also grow along with it. So we have the next stage where there is an intellectual development. That's when philosophies come into being, all the systems, darshanas, all this come into being. And then because mind is not uh, the only thing, but even our life parts demand a spiritual um, consummation. So then we have the Dwapar, when this is the age of heroism, world over. So you have the Mahabharata, you have the Trojan War, where the same truth descends in the life parts, in, in you know, ethics and action. And then finally in Kaliug, where that power descends into matter and it wants to realize itself in physical and material terms. So this is the whole cycle. And um, uh, this part is not mentioned here, but as the mother says, we have had six such cycles of six pralayas. Now, six pralayas, different pralayas are mentioned in um, different uh, mystic literature. It's, it's The memory of the pralaya is embedded in the race. It's there in the great deluge story of Noah. It is there in Indian system. And pralaya is akin to an individual's death. So there is dissolution of forms. Forms is not just physical. Pralaya also means a way of life that human beings had developed. It completely dissolves. So, because that is also a form. When we lead life in a certain way, it becomes a form. We say that the character has a form. Our everyday activity, it takes a form. So, all these are dissolved. And then there is a new creation which comes up. Just like after death, the soul takes a new body and starts the great adventure. So, there have been six pralayas. Does it correspond to, uh, correspond to anything in science? Well, we know at least that there were five or six ice ages. And two of them are uh, very much in the realm of uh, human um, journey. Uh, one was when, um, uh, what was the reason for it? Uh, was it the, I think it was the, one of the asteroids hitting the earth. And they were about, just about maybe uh, 5,000 or 10,000 human beings left. And how the journey would have started. Another was when there was a volcanic eruption and there were just about 1,000 human beings left. And they started the journey again. So there are some such indications that there have been mass um, destruction of human beings. And with that, the entire human life, it gets affected. And it rebuilds itself again, but in new ways. So each pralaya in a cycle is like a relearning process. And one comes back and comes back and evolves in better ways and higher ways. So each spiral is basically an evolutionary spiral. So Shubindu starts with that and the very first chapter is the cycle of society. And there he describes, he brings it nearer to us that there are at least three stages which can be recognized in a society. The first stage is typal or symbolic. 
So symbolic stages or typal stages when uh, humanity has a direct experience, revelatory experiences with the truth, with the greater truth. And these experiences take certain forms which are symbolic. And for instance, you have a vision of Shiva and you see him meditating on the mountain peaks. So it becomes, um, Shiva becomes the symbol of a greater reality. So like that, human beings come in contact with the greater reality and that reality takes certain forms and symbols. Uh, that is the typal stage. Uh, then the typal begins to pass into the conventional. So what happens in the conventional, we begin to lose. In fact, there are two stages. First is when we know the symbol and we give it a more structured form because life wants to connect with it. So one person had a symbol of Shiva, wonderful experience or of Krishna or Vishnu. He actually saw in his vision Vishnu lying on the couch of serpent. He understood what is Shir Shagar and or he was enthralled with the experience. He didn't care to understand. He is majestic to see him and spontaneously a hymn of adoration, Bhujanga Shainam. <laughs> so, you know, it was for him a very natural expression of what he saw and experienced. Shantakaram Bhujanga Shainam. Padmanabham, Suresham. So, you know, that entire thing is very beautiful. And there are people who still connect with that kind of a, uh, you know, symbolic stage of development of human society. Then when this is transmitted to many who do not understand it, so he builds a convention. So, convention means that you have actually some, let's say, Vigraha of Shiva, or you put it in a certain language and human beings, oh, there is Shiva. What does he look like? Shiva is like that, you know, sitting on the mountains, Mount Kailash, and he is meditating on the tops. Now, in the early stages, which is considered as the golden age of society, you have the convention, which means this vision has a form of life, living. And yet, those who are connected through the convention are aware of the living reality behind the convention. So they don't mistake um, that, okay, outer is, I'll give an example. For instance, uh, when Apollo had landed on moon, so there was a heated discussion in our village. How is it possible? Why is it not possible? Shiva is Chandrasekhara. How can they claim that they have landed on the moon? Because moon is resting on the head of Shiva. Now this is when the spirit was lost. Only the form remained. So, there comes a time when convention becomes more and more important and one loses the spirit. So, when the spirit is lost, a time comes when only convention is important. You must take it like Swami Vivekananda, iconoclast, you know, he said very interestingly, every day you must give bath to your body and to your soul. But if you cannot give bath to the body, to both, then give bath to your soul. What was he doing? He was liberating us from this idea that you have to first take a bath and a particular moment, uh, Sandhya, at this point of time you should sit and worship morning Brahma Muhurt ki vela mein. So, there comes a time when convention becomes so strong, rigid, hard, like a fixed formula. So, second stage is convention or rather two stages. One when the convention is connected with the symbol, second when the convention has become hard, rigid. And there comes out of this state, suddenly individuals who burst out, they spring out. They revolt against the convention. They don't accept it. And that is also important because that's how the old form will dissolve and a new one will emerge through these individuals who will become catalyst of the next stage. So that is what we find in the story of Shiva and Daksh, Prajapati and Sati and Parvati. So... There comes a time when there are individuals who will revolt against the convention. Why should I go to temple? Why should I do this? A lot of parents nowadays complain, not realizing it is God's doing. Huh? Please don't uh, blame the children. Bhagwan uh, body you know. The divine breaks his own outer body. It's beautifully there in one of the legends of Devi. Uh, I don't know if somebody is familiar with the form Chinnamasta or not. So in Chinnamasta, how is the Devi portrayed? She has slain her own, she has cut her own head. And she is holding that head. And you know, very interesting part, Chinnamasta is regarded as a goddess of fertility. She is destroying 
and she is regarded as a goddess of fertility of new creation so the mother destroys her own body what is this world her own body head all the thought form structures around which life is organized she destroys it and she destroys so that the new creation can emerge and very interesting if you see the image unfortunately a typical western outlook doesn't understand all these things they understand very little anyways so uh, it she is shown as uh, she is stepped on a couple who are uh, engaged in a sexual intercourse so here again the image of purusha and prakriti who are coming together to create something new and more beautiful this is the whole meaning so beautifully conjured but if you don't know the essence or the meaning then this image oh my god this is so ghastly how can you know <laughs> she slay herself but when you know the image and its meaning it's so beautiful and powerful that's what you see in many of these so individuals react they revolt because they want to now the same truth must take place in a new way so actually you see chinnamasta happening in today's times so you see parents now at the most outer level parents come together there is a union and there are children but these children are freed from the old forms right because the divine mother is cut off all those systems so they may not speak about they may not have read vedanta in that way but they want to embody vedanta in their own way so when they say all world is one unity basically it is the lamp of vedanta beginning to light up they don't understand its real sense animals are also creatures whom we should love we should take care of earth plants this is a new form that this impulse is taking so this is what he explains to us in the cycle of society and then comes straight away to the age of individualism and reason so what helps us to break those molds is reason why because in the symbolic age you don't care to you know give a reason to it you have seen you have had a vision of shiva who cares to give it you know you know what shiva means you don't you had you are so you have undergone a great change within and all that you do is you burst out into a hymn of adoration shiva ham shiva ham sachidananda ham you don't uh, feel the need even to explain then there is convention there you can't apply reason it is something which goes comes down as a system of belief but now reason comes in as a third power it says no i want to explain everything understand everything rationally so reason begins to break the old mold but reason alone is not a sufficient power to rebuild still it tries now when reason tries to make that whole vision sensible sometimes it ends up creating a rational religion where it the heart is dried it becomes a cold and flameless sacrifice so shubindo takes us further one by one little by little through all these baby steps so age of individualism and reason is the revolt of reason and the revolt of the human mind of individuals not the masses against the customs the traditions and all the forms in which the spirit was trapped and then with that comes the subjectivity so all the codes and systems they break down so individual begins to say we will do and follow what we believe in that's the age we can see all this connect with i want to do it according to me you can't compel me that i must do this i must touch feet i must wake up early morning and at this particular hour do this so these children embody the spirit of the future and they break the molds of the past uh, but they are not yet connected with the spirit that gave birth to them so in subjective age there are two aspects which he speaks of a little later and there is the false subjectivism and a true subjectivism false subjectivism is where we confuse the vital desires for me so many time when we say i want to do what i feel like now most of the time it is false subjectivism true subjectivism is where we discover the subject that is the soul but this cannot be discovered uh, without going through this danger so people who are so much worried are aajkal ke bacche because you know they want things to be according to the conventional type of, you know age are mistaken they don't realize that humanity has to pass through it it has its dangers and perils but there is no other way that human beings will take the staff of faith and discover their soul they have to go through the this stage of 
peril and danger. And then there is, of course, uh, in between true and false subjectivism, uh, Shubhendra speaks about the discovery of the nation soul because he is speaking here about the collective evolution. So in collective evolution, there are three stages uh, known as three steps of Vishnu. First step towards our collective life is the most elementary is family. It is the unit where you feel you are not alone in this world and you, you have people who are you know, with you. You have to find a way to adapt to them. You have to harmonize with them. So this family is the first unit which has already been established. It's the collective unit. Now the next step is nation. And the third step is the world. So those who want to skip the stage of nation don't realize that it doesn't work out. For a simple reason that if you skip the stage of the nation, in some time back when nations were not formed, we see empires. So why these empires could actually invade? Because the sense of nation, it was nowhere there. There was a group of people who believed in a certain way of life. But their vision of nation was always limited to their own little, uh, you know, uh, for instance, for Shivaji, such a huge empire he built. But yet, Mahabharati was the mother of the Marathas. Rana Ranjit Singh, Raja Ranjit Singh, mother of the, you know, the land of Punjab. So like that, the vision was there. Even in Bengal, the mother of, you know, uh, it, it came in spontaneously. So all over the world this was happening. In France this happened, in England this happened. So all the, on this we had a you know long talk. So nation is the first collective unit or the second after the family, the first collective unit which the divine wants to establish. One, because each nation expresses a certain kind of divine uh, movement. And the individuals have to embody it, collect with it, connect with it. And despite differences of various kinds, color and language and, you know, outer customs, yet it is this common element which becomes the binding force. So when we are trained by the nation, then we are ready for the world unity. Otherwise, if we prematurely speak about internationalism, what will happen is, you say all humanity is one. So... Chinese say very good. So they invade. Why would you resist all unities? So people start taking another view. They say no, country I will defend. And how they look at country? Purely as a physical landmass. So the first um, awakening to the nation's soul is that the nation is a body. So that's it. So they will defend the country as a landmass. But they will not defend the culture, the great traditions, the spirit of a country because that doesn't exist. But this is a very, though it's a first awakening, yet it is a dangerous situation. That's how we allowed a cultural invasion. It's still taking place. Because we identified with the country by the, you know, only as a physical landmass. So it doesn't matter. So this is where it's important to understand that a nation has a soul, it has a mind and it has a body. Soul means its unique spiritual temperament with which it expresses itself. In France, for example, unity, equality, fraternity. In India, its spirituality, the master key with which it tried to understand everything. So in each country, there is the uh, nation's soul, which is its own unique mode of spiritual expression. And it has a mind. So by mind is mean its unique culture, its Temperament and it's there in every country. Actually, we know it or not, but it's there. If you go to a, you know, there are countries where if you don't uh, say uh, howdy to a stranger, he takes offense. You know, so it's. <laughs> but if you smile at a child or say kitta cute hai, you are run the risk of being called police, being called, and you can be apprehended. It's it's a fact because this acceptable part. When you say this or you meet and. You, uh, what is it called? Side embrace and all this. So it is considered in you know a way of life. Uh, but certain other aspects are not. But in India we have a different way of life. So we are cool with you know smiling at a child, taking the child in the lap, and saying very cute, boss sona hai. And you know when you give back, mother is very happy about it. Uh, 
but we don't start telling a stranger on the beach road, hi, how do you do? <laughs> that will be. So every nation has its own ethos, its own unique culture, its tendencies and they come from its outlook towards life. Now why we in India we prefer to do namaste or we do like this? Because we take it that namaste is an expression of the divine in the heart. So we connect from the heart. So we do namaste. But if you go to a western culture, typically you go towards the other side of the globe, then you embrace in one way or the other. Why? Because they are both. You don't feel the contact unless it's physical. So <laughs> it's, it's the way the whole thing has developed. So you have different, different um, areas and you know um, of of uh, this world, and each nation represents its own unique way of understanding life. So in the Western world, there has lot been uh, this false subjectivism that is they atma both. They mistake the body and the vital for the self. So there is lot of stress on physical comfort and vital enjoyment. Uh, and whereas in Indian thought. Sacrifice, Tyaga, you know, you'll hear these stories and discovering the soul, the spirit, that is what is given importance. And uh, Shubhindo speaks about that in objective and subjective views of life. So there's this objective view where body, tangible success, material success, you can't argue that there is an inner success when you're living a life which is truly yours. Now you try explaining it to a person with a completely objective view. You will say, what's up to take a bank balance kitna hai? At the end, no? No, I feel so beautiful doing this, you know, inwardly. I have grown in love and wisdom. All that is okay. I want to write poetry. Oh, poetry is all okay. But this, you tell me, how much will you earn with the poetry? So there is the objective view of life and the subjective. Actually, at bottom, everything at its bottom is subjective, even material creation. But that's not what Shrivindo takes up here. He takes it up in the life divine at great length. And then he speaks about the ideal law of social development where both these aspects are important. It's not that you have to just discover the spirit within. Life must also thrive and grow rich. As you see in ancient Indian culture, that it was not just spiritual development. There was such a beautiful expression in art, poetry, music, manifold expressions of the spirit within. Such lovely structures, not only temples, but everything. You know, if you look at some of these uh, forts, the way the people used to live, you are amazed. You go to this, you know, whatever uh, ruins are remaining of Harappa, Mohenjo-Daro and all these places. It's amazing how they thought about and constructed these things and so it must include every sphere of life so there must be and the ideal society is where both aspects the subjective and the objective are given considerable importance if you have only objective which is given important then you have an asuric civilization so you have soneki lanka but heart is all crushed so that's why soneki lanka must be brought down the golden Lanka. So that Vibhishna, who represents the heart and the turn toward the divine, that can be released and it can impregnate the soil. So this is the whole idea. And then he says, very beautiful two uh, chapters which we'll read. Some portion of it we'll read. Civilization and barbarism and civilization and culture. So what do we mean by civilization? Normally we mean when you are dressed well, oh, what a civilized person. And if you are, you know, dressed, let us say, in a dhoti or lungi, now it's very good, I love this, you know. In the southern states, they have kept up that, you know, lungi pahankegdam, you know. They don't dress to lungi dance. It's like, consider a pride, huh? So you wear a lungi and you wear a... It's a nice thing, you know. You have a... It's, it's a good thing that, you know, you. it's not this, it's not this that makes you a civilized or a cultured person. So, Shubhindu de- describes it very beautifully. Who is a barbarian? Barbarian is somebody who lives only for the body and the vital. So, you have two kinds of barbarians. One is the brute barbarian who lives only for the body. You may speak posh English. You may be a, you know, Harvard. Um, I have nothing against Harvard. Huh? I keep taking the example. Okay, Delhi University, JNU. <laughs> JNU, okay. 
you may have done phd and everything but you are basically your life is centered around the body and its enjoyment and pleasure that is a barbarian by definition see <laughs> ramakrishna put it very interestingly he said many men are like vultures their wings they can fly but their eyes is on that little piece of meat which is below that's being a barbarian so how does people become civilized in for a barbarian there is no law he doesn't obey law he says i'll do what i feel like whatever gives me pleasure that is the life i will lead so if there is a law and order he'll try ways and means to figure out to escape his life is centered around money and the comforts and all the you know that bur- not even bourgeois it is something still worse only around physical enjoyments to visit a casino to put money on satte baji and jua and this is the way of life so that's a barbarian he may be qualified he may be a super doctor don't be mistaken he is a pickpocketer only thing is he has got a degree to it and is authorized licensed to pickpocket you so that's a barbarian and barbarians are of two types one is the brute and the other is more subtle which we don't recognize the economic barbarian have you seen him plenty so you go to a lady who sells vegetables out here or who is let's say that you know flower vendor vegetables or these people who make some of these you go and buy things so you see she'll say 50 rupees and you say 40 rupya ka de do na 30 rupya ka she will give you for 40 you know she has earned a loss but she keeps you sometimes she'll give you a nice smile along with that and you feel so happy that you know interacting now this is culture you go to a hi-fi store i don't want to name and you tell them after picking up a shirt for 2500 ki bhaiya zara iska 100 rupya kam kar do ye material to lagta nahi this material it doesn't look that good he will say he'll give you such a dirty look <laughs> that's called barbarian being barbarian why because the whole thing is centered around making money and there is so much to it they spend money on advertisement they spend money on having five star hotel meetings they come out in posh cars but at heart it is a barbarian so be careful economic barbarism is one of the dangers and shubindu spoke about it so barbarian is not dead philistine is not dead so where civilization is law and order so there is these two barbarians one doesn't believe in law and order the second will do it within the frame of law or know how to manipulate the law <laughs> so that is the second kind but he is a civilized person because he will not break the law apparently he will circumvent the law now where does culture really begin so civilization is when a society is organized complete barbaric society is go to somalia live and come back modern syria once such a great land you will see what barbarians huh? i don't know whether i should name pakistan or not law and order completely broken down but civilization is when you have a law and order you may still have a barbaric view of life but you have a system some people are very impressed by system that in singapore if you spit on the road you are put behind bars i said yeah i know but when you go to the market and you see a live snake whom you ask to be cut and chopped and served as a meal as a delicacy that's when the barbarian comes out so it is civilized but not cultured understand the difference very civilized why because out of fear you tip it not so you may be civilized but not culture so a lot of modern systems have civilized us we know how to speak market things market ourselves as product but we are not cultured so where does culture begin culture begins when human beings begin to lead an independent mental existence when you begin to think and reflect about what life should be as long as we are driven by the mass herd mentality we are not cultured 
कल्चर इज नॉट अबाउट डूइंग आरती पूजा एंड टचिंग द फीट कल्चर इज वेन यू बिगिन टू रिफ्लेक्ट इट्स ए पीपल हु हैव ए मेंटल लाइफ वाई बिकॉज नाउ वी आर नॉट आइडेंटिफाइड विद द बॉडी एंड द वाइटल बट विद मोर रिफाइंड इमोशंस विद अ हायर मेंटेलिटी सो दैट्स वेन वी बिगिन टू बिकम कल्चर्ड so now we understand why many of the youngsters who are beginning to have their own thoughts are moving towards true culture because they want to understand things in their own way you have a mental you challenge everything and you rediscover things in your own way why should i respect so many of the people they say we don't want to respect by authority we want to respect by authenticity isn't it something very beautiful because they have thought about it they what really is love so they make a distinction even shades of love i am amazed so it's going towards more and more culture in heydays of india you could see this culture in every sphere of life even when you were people were i i was giving this example even in anger how they spoke parshuram how he speaks even in anger he is so you know <laughs> he is not maryada purushottam but still you see ravana even ravana sounds you know he doesn't use any abusive words he is saying all kinds of things i am this i am that i'll do this i'll do that rama is the ultimate example of culture the aryan cultured man after listening to him he says will you only waste your energy on words or let's play battle battle you see the difference so that's where and you know in in high culture when people used to have these kind of um thoughts reflections uh, culture begins when you encourage these tendencies when you encourage poetry art music things which make us refined things which make us but see in modern times the stress is only on job and the money you will earn so most people will not even look at arts why because arts say how are you going to on this is a barbaric view of life whereas a truly cultured view will be doesn't matter you you want to take up music you want to take up you know you could take up science but it should spring with a deeper sense not just to earn money you want to learn physics you want to understand about space the mystery of matter is beautiful that's where culture comes in so there is culture and civilization then aesthetic and ethical culture so culture goes to next level so thought refinement now aesthetics is about beauty so here again initially we think about beauty in terms of form and it's important it's good to have beauty of form but beauty of form is not the last word this is also called as beautiful character we say that you know a person has a beautiful character beautiful speech the way a person speaks beautiful feelings don't we use this word so the sense of beauty also turns inwards and ultimately it turns towards the divine and discovers its original swarup which is formless beauty we have this conception of beauty in the highest form of the divine mother tripur sundari she is the highest form she is the beauty that lends her glow to the all the three worlds all beauty wherever we see is nothing but a glow from her light she is luminous beyond i eyes cannot behold her she is beautiful that's why we see in all our conceptions the divine has this beautiful aspect we have forgotten it and the mother said at one place that uh, we were taught to shun beauty and that was because of the asuric influence upon us so beauty is an aspect and attribute of the divine similarly with aesthetics it uh, similarly with ethics starts by outwardly the right and wrong but after some time you say well right and wrong cannot be an absolute rule there are many shades in between there are different stages different uh, situations different circumstances if you put everything into a bracketed right and wrong it is too crude so human culture evolves so now for example one of the sciences that you know when people say no means no even if you are married if a woman says no and the husband tries to force it is legal but it is not ethical from the deepest standpoint it's neither beautiful so ethics and sense of beauty also evolves further and becomes more and more cultured till ethics discovers 
that well the only one way to ensure that you are really doing the right thing is to do the will of god no other way of absolute certainty you can say that this is the right thing so this is the whole gita which comes so he speaks about that and then he comes to that who should govern our life reason that's how we think about but he speaks about the limitations of reason the data on which reason bases itself is inadequate on senses it doesn't have the understanding of the deeper play of the larger picture so it's very very limited but it has its place its place is to organize the lower instincts of human beings so that's why we say be reasonable it has its place and it has its place to give form of expression to the truths that an intuitive mind receives from above but when reason begins to say that i i can discover god by scientific analysis it is mistaken there comes a limitation it cannot why because the subjective side of existence is not measurable or graspable by reason supposing you say that you know i feel love of god so how are you going to define and describe you may do nothing you may not even go to temple do bhajan kirtan but you have love of god reason will try to understand grasp it will become intangible so there is another parallel line of evolution which takes place from the heart and that is religion both of these are efforts to strivings towards finding the truth but religion also falls short because religion discovers the truth of the heart but it does it very often by infrarational and suprarational means suprarational is rare usually it it shuts reason so if you ask a typically religious person he say i don't understand i don't want to know i have this faith which is okay good but it'll take you up to a point then reason will start pulling you down so this balance between reason and religion humanity has tried to find but you cannot find till you evolve to the next level which is the intuitive then you understand the sense of religion then you understand reason as a means to express the truths that intuition reveals so shobindu through all this is taking us toward the spiritual evolution of mankind which is the next step and then he speaks about some beautiful chapters we are obviously skipping that we have we are reaching the end of the curve of reason that's why you see humanity is beginning to separate into two parts one is the infra rational and the second is those who are striving toward the supra rational who are not satisfied with reason just a rational way and somehow or the other they, they trust that there is something greater higher they don't know what and they're beginning to seek and there are others who break down all the systems that reason has created because they want to lead a life of licentiousness so these are the two ways we see mankind being Uh, the the curve of reason which controlled codified stifles the free expansion of the spirit so therein comes this element of freedom so without freedom there can be no real spiritual evolution what does it mean does it mean freedom to choose yes does it mean freedom to make mistakes yes shubindu says that you have to take that the freedom to err because that's how you will learn otherwise it's not you but because your parents said grandparents said therefore you are doing it following it and he speaks of all this that spiritual age will start when we begin to recognize this need of freedom in human beings and today it is being recognized people say i want more space mom don't enter without knocking so this is because there is a need for more space so this is how you'll make mistakes again subjective and the false and true subjectivism but through that without freedom there is no authentic evolution we may read the gita 100 times but we may not ever know what the soul is because we are too satisfied with following a routine of religion we may read all books of spiritual philosophy yet we may not understand what does a single phrase like ekameva dvitiyam stand for because we have not lived that truth so shubindu speaks about the next age stage of evolution which is coming up when human beings will have a spiritual aim but this spiritual aim will be towards self fulfillment through the spiritual consciousness not annulment meaning thereby how i can lead a fuller life 
a greater life, a more beautiful life, a truer life. When people use these expressions, truer life, see, the first spiritual evolution takes this secular form. Love for truth, love for beauty, love for good. Satyam, Shivam, Sundaram. These are the three aspects of the soul. It, doesn't, it may not use the word God, but it says that you love truth. So nowadays people say, I want honesty. Basically pointing towards that. Good and beauty. So these three aspects. Then later on it goes more directly towards God, divine, something still greater. That comes later. So we have this curve which has started and uh, the spiritual aim of life is like that. Whatever you may be doing, if you are doing it because it's the expression of the truth within you or you want to know the truth of things or you want things to be for the ultimate good or at least with a sense of the beautiful, then one is already speaking of spiritual aim. So spiritual aim is not joining a cult or a creed or these formulas. That spiritual means now I am belonging to this group. I am doing this practice. That again will stifle the spiritual impulse eventually because you can't shut the spirit into any one formula. It will break free from that. So the widest, that's why Sanatan Dharma White was thriving and continues to thrive. It allowed that scope and freedom. Hundred ways you can explore. So that was the beauty of Sanatan Dharma. And then he speaks about the conditions for the coming of a spiritual age which he was foreseeing and the advent and progress of the spiritual age. So these are the 24 chapters. I'll quickly read. So one of this, he's asking us that when we speak about the spiritual evolution, we should be careful not to enforce things as a dogma upon others. But it will not seek to enforce even this one uplifting dogma. Uplifting dogma, discovery of the soul, the spirit within. This alone can help us ascend. By any external compulsion upon the lower members of man's natural being. For that is nigraha, a repressive contraction of the nature, which may lead to an apparent suppression of the evil, but not to a real and healthy growth of the good. Look at how beautifully. You'll notice it. One of the things, beautiful things in Shurabindu Ashram. There is nothing like everybody must go for collective meditation. There is a ganti now, please go. Attendance being taken. If you are not gone, none of these things. See, inner growth. You may stand before the samadhi. It's not that you have to bow down. Nothing. You are left to yourself. It's between you and the divine. So many of these things. Because when you enforce a code, the people who live here who don't go even to the ashram, they are ashram inmates. They don't read the books. It's up to them. Nothing is enforced. It's your freedom in which you grow. To your peril or to your advantage. <laughs> because if you force something, then it loses its... It will rather hold up this creed and ideal as a light and inspiration to all its members to grow into the Godhead from within themselves to become freely divine. Neither in the individual nor in the society will it seek to imprison, well, wall in, repress, impoverish, but to let in the widest air and the highest light. So there is no such rules. There was a time when there was no rule for the ashram, even for Auroville. So people said, Mother, please give something because people don't understand. They are not ready for this kind of life. Ashram for a long time, the only rule was that two Shurpindos, one of the writings they had put because they have to put something. But of course, the golden rule. Live always as if under the eye of the Divine Mother. So, live always as if the Divine Mother is watching you. She is there with you. That is the idea. Do nothing. Try to think and feel nothing. That would be unworthy of the Divine Presence. So, just to live with this idea that Divine Mother is there. She is not watching you like that. But with all compassion, she is the all-knowing witness. Isn't it? Soryo yatha. Sarvalokasya chakshu nalipyate chakshushe bahyadosha Eko vashi sarvabhutantaratma nalipyate 
लोक दुखीन वाहिया द ओमनी प्रेजेंट रियालिटी इज वॉचिंग ओवर एस इट इज इट इज समथिंग वेरी कंफर्टिंग इंसिडेंटली बिकॉज यू नो दैट शी इज वॉचिंग ओवर एस इट इज दैट इट्स नॉट वॉचिंग ओवर एस टू कंडेम नो इट इज वॉचिंग ओवर एस वेन वी स्टम्बल इट लैंड हैंड टू लिफ्ट एस अप वेन वी मेक ए मिस्टेक एंड लुक टूवर्ड्स एस ई स्माइल्स एस इज इट्स ओके my love is there to cushion you that's what is meant because people turn even those beautiful things into <laughs> all kinds of things and then much later when people insisted the mother made some rules which also of course they are more practical rules rather than you know absolute things so this is how we see that gives this importance a large liberty will be the law of a spiritual society and the increase of freedom is sign of the growth of human society toward the possibility of true spiritualization parents please listen large freedom yes dangerous yes it is dangerous you can't climb to mount everest saying i don't want dangers then you can go and have a replica made somewhere and say i have climbed here but real kailash is not just going to mansarovar physically that is doable but to climb the inner kailash to take a dip in the mansarovar it is difficult you may get actually frozen take the danger there is a joy in that adventure so but it is only possible in freedom so that's how he is saying and then see something very powerful you know this is so important for many of us who forget this to spiritualize in this sense a society of slaves slaves of power slaves of authority slaves of custom slaves of dogma slaves of all sorts of imposed laws which they live under rather than live by them slaves internally of their own weakness ignorance and passions from whose worst effect they seek or need to be protected by another and external slavery bahut bhul kar raha hu galti kar raha hu mujhe bacha lena jab main galat karu so can never be a successful endeavor they must shake off their fetters first in order to be fit for a higher freedom not that man has not to wear many a yoke in his progress upward but only the yoke which he accepts because it represents the more perfectly the better the highest inner law of his nature and its aspiration will be entirely helpful to him the rest by their good results at a heavy cost and may retard as much as or even more than they accelerate his progress so he says the spiritual aim will recognize this truth and it will make human beings give them this freedom to grow and yes it says that well till we have discovered it some kind of law will remain you can't operate without it now you see this is the dream of true anarchy not the uh, false anarchy of the asura the true anarchy is the liberty of the spirit in which all human beings live each one walking by his own light that is what vedanta is in its origin spontaneously naturally imagine a cultured society truly cultured spiritually you won't harm somebody not because it's punishable by law but because it contradicts your own inner truth you discover that it is your own self in the other person so this is how one has to begin to find and this freedom in includes all earnest skepticism and denial you have to allow that and he continues to reveal to us and another very beautiful a spiritualized society would live like its spiritual individuals not in the ego but in the spirit not as the collective ego but as the collective soul to me this was one of the most sobering of things <laughs> i said oh my god i may mistake a community for a collective ego so this was one of the things i had told when people said you know for this community or whatever i said excuse me i am here for the divine not for satisfying the collective ego i understand its importance and necessity but that's not what one is here for 
So very clearly Shubhinda has cautioned all these things. This, this freedom from the egoistic standpoint would be its first and most prominent characteristic. But this elimination of egoism would not be brought about as it is now proposed to bring it about by persuading or forcing the individual to immolate his personal will and aspirations and his precious and hard-won individuality to the collective will, aim and egoisms of the society. To get rid of ego does not mean you sacrifice at the order of your mother-in-law or daughter-in-law or son-in-law or whoever people. That's not getting rid of. That's just becoming a martyr for no meaninglessly. It has to be sacrificed at the only one true altar. The altar of truth and good and beauty and love and divine. All that is divine. It is not at the. That's what the Gita is about. You know, many of these passages look like Sri Krishna is speaking. Slavery, slavery, slavery. And he says, looks like, what are you doing, Arjuna? You are talking like a pandit, but behaving like a, you know, <laughs> with cowardice. So he speaks about universality. And a spiritualized society would treat in its sociology the individual from the saint to the criminal not as units of a social problem to be passed through some skillfully devised machinery and either flattened into the social mold or crushed out of it. But as souls suffering and entangled in a net and to be rescued, souls growing and to be encouraged to grow, souls grown and from whom help and power can be drawn by the lesser spirits who are not yet adult. What will be the aim of economics? Not to create a huge engine of production, whether of the competitive or the cooperative kind. The joy of work according to their own nature and free leisure to grow inwardly, as well as a simply rich and beautiful life of all. That's what the ashram is a dream. In its politics, it would not regard the nations within the scope of their own internal life as enormous state machines, regulated and armoured with man living for the sake of the machine and worshipping it as his god and his larger self, content at the first call to kill others upon its altar and to bleed there himself so that the machine may remain intact. So he, you know, every aspect of life, science, religion, uh, arts, music, poetry, everything. The whole motive power will shift from the outer to the inner, from the egoistic to the spirit. So that is the basic shift. And then, maybe just a couple of, yes, two passages and we'll stop. A spiritual age of mankind will perceive this truth. It will not try to make man perfect by machinery or keep him straight by tying up all his limbs. It will not present to the member of the society his higher self in the person of the policeman, the official and the corporal, nor let us say in the form of a socialistic bureaucracy or a labor soviet. Its aim will be to diminish as soon and as far as possible the need of the element of external compulsion in human life by awakening the inner divine compulsion of the spirit within and all the preliminary means it will use will have that for its aim. So, I feel vindicated. My very intuitive feeling always that the new world will come when these four people are out of job. The policeman, the lawyers, the doctor, sorry, they will not allow you to heal yourself. Huh? Medicine, test. Sir, can I heal myself? Don't talk all this humbug nonsense. And finally, the priest who intercedes between you and God. The day these four fellows are out, we are ready for a new creation. <laughs> and lastly, as a reminder, for the way that humanity deals with an ideal is to be satisfied with it as an aspiration, which is for the most part left only as an aspiration, accepted only as a partial influence. After Sunday church, for the next six days, I can kill people, do everything, invade this country, that country. 
after doing jumma ki namaz i can pick up stones and do whatever i want to do that's not spirituality in fact that is much worse it's much simpler to say i don't believe in god and i'll pick up a stone and throw and hit you <laughs> it's barbaric but barbaric not wearing the cloth it's like wolf is a wolf not wolf wearing the cloth of lamb that i believe in brotherhood but you are not my brother because you follow a different way now that's kind of a stupidity and farcical life has to cease it will cease it will cease by the pressure of evolution nature will find its way so he says the idol is not allowed to mold the whole life it happened everywhere except that in sanatan dharma we have a way of accepting internal reforms so you know dowry and bride burning caste system it just goes we accept because we hold on to the core these things will come and go it's accepted that things will change outwardly it's inbuilt you will have a new guru coming up and he will say you know stop it so we stop it <laughs> because the word of the guru guru brahma guru vishnu guru deva maheshwara but where there is one book and one uh, whatever master or whatever representative of the divine is the most dangerous thing to happen because there is no evolution you are stuck in 2500 years because life has moved changed you are not ready to evolve so that's why you see any teaching has these two aspects temporal and eternal sanatan dharma holds on to the eternal keeps giving new forms to the temporal so that was of course an aside the idol is not allowed to mold the whole life but only more or less to color it i will read the gita every day after doing gita vachan katha i'll say jajman kitna de rahe ho cash de dena why because aajkal ed ki rate pad rahi hai please hand over in cash because ed is after us that's not doing geeta <laughs> register for a geeta course sir how much i have to pay 1000 rupees what does the geeta preach nishkam karma <laughs> do it as an offering trust the divine if he has to give something to you he'll give you if not forget about it so this is the practice of an ideal not uh, not just giving a lip service the ideal is not allowed to mold the whole life but only more or less to color it it is often used even as a cover and a plea for things that are diametrically opposed to its real spirit institutions are created which are supposed but too lightly supposed to embody that spirit and the fact that the ideal is held the fact that men live under its institution is treated as sufficient ashramite ban gaye zindagi theek ho gayi i belong to this cult now i am emancipated doesn't matter my name is written in the book not even the book my surname i have changed my name and surname that is good enough hai na aise hota hai hari has become harry now i am emancipated why because that's good enough what i do what i live is not relevant this i have never understood this change of outer name if you want to adopt a religion adopt but keep your name what's what's the problem <laughs> it'll be so interesting to see <laughs> how these chain so institutions are created which are supposed but too lightly supposed to embody that spirit and the fact that the ideal is held the fact that men live under its institution is treated as sufficient the holding of an ideal becomes almost an excuse for not living according to the ideal i am already now part of the elite that's enough I don't need to do anything. I don't need to change within. It's almost like an excuse. The existence of its institutions is sufficient to abrogate the need of insisting on the spirit that made the institutions. But spirituality is, in its very nature, a thing subjective and not mechanical. It is nothing if it is not lived inwardly. and if the outward life does not flow out of this inward living symbols see we are closing where we began with symbols types conventions ideas are not sufficient 
A spiritual symbol is only a meaningless ticket unless the thing symbolized is realized in the spirit. Frankly, if you realize in the spirit, you may not even need it. Except for the joy and fullness of life. A spiritual convention may lose or expel its spirit and become a falsehood. Every day I sit in meditation for two hours. I mean, I'm not talking about why I, but you know, if you record, do a sleep recording, you'll see what lovely snoring is going on. But every day, Niyamse, Nit name, that is the word used. We go to temple every day. At this point of time, I do this particular arti. I do Shiva's Bhasma arti. When I come out, I behave like what was that fellow, Bhasmasur? <laughs> Use Shiva's wonderful power for my own petty advantage until I am destroyed by my own excesses. Now that's not spirituality. That's not bhakti. Bhakta goes and gives himself to the divine and walks free. If you are not able to walk free from an encounter with the divine, you have not really encountered the divine. A spiritual convention may lose or expel its spirit and become a falsehood. A spiritual type may be a temporary mold into which spiritual living may flow. But it is also a limitation and may become a prison in which it fossilizes and perishes. See, that's what has happened to most of the religions, all the religions actually. That's why the age of religion is over. A spiritual idea is a power, but only when it is both inwardly and outwardly creative. Creative means it must bring out its own way of expression. Oh, all is God, all is God, therefore I will take a snake and tie it in my... You know, a snake is God. So somebody will tell you, only Shiva does that, huh? Don't do this. There is a subtitle. Play with snakes only if you are Shiva. Footnote. Yes, snake is God. Worship him. That's what we do. Means like every creature. Don't go and kill him, snake, wherever you see. If you can catch this, you know, percent. That's what it means. Everything is God. Everything is sacred. Everything is beautiful. But when you make this spiritual idea only a convention, then you are running a great risk. So this is where, so he says that it must be creative. And then finally he says, the divine perfection is always there above us. But for man to become divine in consciousness and act and to live inwardly and outwardly, the divine life is what is meant by spirituality. All lesser meanings given to the word are inadequate fumblings or impostures. So we'll stop here. Please read the, the beautiful passages after that who will be the individuals who will spearhead this evolution what will be their consciousness like whether they will try to turn things into a cult or creed or formula or they will live according to this larger freedom who will be they and how they will deal with others whom they are helping not as gurus and masters but as elder brothers as souls that are advancing and carrying everybody together so this is how this book, The Human Cycle, Shurbindo reveals to us the road map of a century. Hopefully less than that. <laughs> but okay, one century is okay. And he inspires us, gives us entire know-how, how to move towards it, how to avoid the pitfalls and the dangers, and what to do inwardly to grow into the life of the spirit individually and collectively. Namaste.